one of my favorite things ever are maps. I love maps. Since I was a kid, I've just been fascinated by maps. I can stare at a world map and look at a tiny pixel, which could be a tiny little island, no bigger than the hair's breadth on the map and somewhere out in the middle of the sea. And looking at it, think somebody actually lives there. There is life going on there. That is the power of a map. It contains stories, whether it's the map of the skies or map of the earth. Maps are stories. And they don't just contain stories, but they are stories in themselves. You see, what we are generally oblivious to is just what stories maps are telling us about the world. At the very basic level, the map that is on your wall or was in your classroom is a subjective representation of the earth. The earth is a sphere. It's a ball, but yet a map is flat. So at some point, somebody has had to subjectively interpret that map to allow us to understand it in a two-dimensional context. So there have been interpretations, not necessarily based on science. And when you look at maps, you actually see there are many, many different types of maps out there about the world, and they look very different. And each one is a subjective interpretation of the, quote, truth, quote. Many years ago, I was an English teacher in Japan, mid-90s. You know, the world of Japan back then, TDK, Toshiba, Sony, it was an exciting world to be in. It was a world where Japan was the future. Very different today. But if you grew up with that, you saw that that was the place to go. Obviously, China isn't what it was. Sorry, China back then isn't what it is now. And Europe was pretty much sleepy backwater and the dot-com boom hadn't really started yet so the future was east and physically on a map if you flew from london you flew east and yet when you go to japan one of the first things i remember seeing in my manager's office at this school this english language school was i was sitting there and she was just talking about the timetable that i would be following as this new teacher and all the different students and she was explaining who was who and what the protocol was in the new school and my mind was sort of just looking at this map and thinking there's something strange about this map in the office and I was looking at it and thinking I can't get my head around it what this not the map that I know is a map of the world but I just realized actually this map that I was staring at had Japan in the middle and if you put Japan in the middle of the map, the world looks very different. You see, I grew up, like a lot of people, grew up with this Makeda projection. And the Makeda projection effectively puts the world around this axis of, on the left-hand side, Americas, and on the right-hand side, Europe. And then sort of like pushed out to the right-right side, the you know, the Asian continent. And, you know, we haven't even talked about South America and Africa, which are kind of like 
push down to the bottom. And when you look at this projection, you assume that is the world. And it's a world that's built around Atlantic. And you may think that, well, it's just a map, but look at how that shapes our interpretation of the world. NATO, for example, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, is built around this worldview of the Atlantic, these, these two sort of like axes of powers, Europe and Americas. That is who runs the world in the old worldview. And if you think about how we speak of the world, we talk about the Far East in traditional terms, or the Orient, if you go back to some of the 19th century writers, you know, they talk about the Orient as anything sort of East of Turkey. Technically, that was correct. And they talk about the Far East as anything sort of, you know, like beyond India. And far means far away. So if you accept that model of the world, you accept that you're not in the center of the world because the center of the world by implication is not far, it's near. And the center of the world is like GMT, it's the meridian line, it's also the Atlantic, and therefore the seat of power is America and Europe. And that's why even Indians, for example, call the Middle East the Middle East, even though it's to the West. Because they have accepted and adopted, by default, that map. And with it, all the stories of the world that go together with the worldview. Probably one of the most powerful and unchallenged narratives is the North Up map. A good example of this is every single map you've ever seen of the world almost every single map you've ever seen, because I'm going to share with you one you've probably never seen. Imagine a map where you have on the left Americas, on the right you have Europe, and then to the far right you have Asia, and below South America, Africa. And then you have Southeast Asia pushed to the bottom right, and then for all our Kiwi friends, you'd be lucky if you even make it onto the map somewhere down in the bottom right corner, and often cropped out, unfortunately. Now, that's because of the narrative of the North Up map. And the question is, is why is the North on top and the South on the bottom? Ask your physics teacher this question. And if you ask most people, the default answer, and I'm sure this is what you're thinking, and it's what I used to think until I learned the truth, is that, well, North is the top of the world. But think about that. In space, there is no up and there is no down. The people on the bottom aren't standing on their heads, are they? They're standing the right way up. So, you know, in Australia, it might be down under, but people aren't upside down, are they? There's no up and down in space, right? Think about it. There is no physical up and down. And therefore, there's no reason why North should be on the top and South should be on the bottom. You could flip the Earth 180 degrees and it would still be the same, right? Okay. But then people say, well, it's the compass. The compass points to the North. Look at the red part of the compass. It's pointing North. Technically, that's not correct. Again, that's what I believed. You know, I look at the compass as well. 
And if I open the app on my phone, and let's have a look at the app on the phone. Yeah, I mean, the, the red dot, the red little pointer points to the north, right? Try it. It's the same. But that is based on a worldview that the compass points north. The compass doesn't point north. And this is where people start getting a little bit confused because they're hanging on to this old world view. I want to put it to you, the compass doesn't point north. If you understand physics and magnetism, the compass points both north and south. Right? A compass doesn't point one direction, it points both directions. If you look at iron filings and you, like you did in physics back in school, you spread the iron filings around the magnet, spreads around both nodes, the north and the south pole of the magnet. It doesn't just spread around the north. Compasses point both north and south. And yet what had happened is some bright person at some point in history had decided to paint the north tip of the compass red. And if you look at the mobile app, as you open your phone, we're stuck with that worldview ever since. Interestingly, if you look at Chinese compasses, old-fashioned, we're talking thousand years old, old-fashioned compasses, and China discovered magnetism long before Europe did, and they were using magnetism to locate the most auspicious sites for graves rather than the Europeans who use magnetism to navigate their way to China and opening up at the end of a barrel of a rifle. The Chinese were using magnetism long before Europeans were, and their compasses, red dot, pointed south. So what had happened at some point in history is we adopted this worldview that the North was on the top. And it made sense because if you look at the old imperial powers, they all sat on the top. And if you look at all the colonies, they all sat on the bottom of the map. That was technically how we saw the world. So if you saw the Americas and Europe and then maybe Russia, these were all, and even Japan for some, to some extent, these were all the old imperialist powers. And yet, on the bottom, you had all the old colonies, South America, Africa, Southeast Asia, Australia even, New Zealand again. So, if you consider how powerful that map has been, it's just a map. It's just a physical manifestation of the world on one hand, but on, in reality, what it's done is it's actually shaped our reality. It's actually made us think about the world in a different way. And that's the power of a map. If you can change a map, you can change people's worldviews. Because if you suddenly put the South on the top of the world, Great Britain, the former British, you know, the heart of British Empire and Queen Victoria and the Empress of India and all of that suddenly becomes this tiny little dot like pushed out to the south and in the bottom, like squeezed into something very insignificant. That's the reality. And South America and India and all the former colonies actually look pretty damn big when you put the south on the top. 
that's not how the imperialists saw the world so for us to follow that imperial narrative we had to buy into this north up map and that is the power of story because if you can control story you can control reality if you read the book 1984 by george orwell big brother doesn't cr control the world through force big brother controls the world through controlling history history his story so when you adopt a map you also adopt a worldview and without the map interestingly you don't have a worldview you don't have a truth by which i can understand your data i see many data scientists presenting data on the basis of its purity and yet unless you give me a map i don't understand what it is that you're trying to sell to me i don't understand the relevance of the data i don't understand the context of the content you're trying to present to me a famous example of this and a great example is the london tube map now the london tube map is physically nothing like the physical manifestation of the stations but which is supposed to represent you know the london tube map is it's it was a, interesting the story behind the london tube map it was introduced by london underground the mass transit and they were a little bit afraid that people wouldn't get it so they they handed it out at the stations as a pamphlet but what actually happened was users so commuters found this was actually much more useful than the physical maps because if you were riding a london underground train you were less concerned about the physical distance between tottenham court road and bond street than you were about what your next stop was you know as a tube user i was interested in am i on the right line what's my next stop how many more stops to go you know it is every time you get on a tube or a train you're always counting the number of stops doesn't matter how far it is you never remember how many stops it is it's always like that heuristic that people still tell themselves like 30 days has september april june and november you know i'm 48 years old and i still haven't learned by default how many days there are in months and similarly i will never learn how many stops there are to my next stop i will always look at a map a tube map and say one two three four five six stops and i'll count it and then after two stops i'll count it again because i'll forget and that's why it's really useful to have a map based on my needs as opposed to data reality right Similarly, if you think about the old Mercator projection, it was the based on the need of navigation as opposed to the purity of the data. Somebody had made a subjective interpretation about what that map should do as opposed to what the map is. So the London tube map on which pretty much every mass transit system is based today was based on what the user needed as opposed to what the data purity was and that is data storytelling data emotion action if you want people to 
use data and to create action out of your data, you have to turn it into relevance. And relevance comes from understanding user storytelling, what it is that you need to do with this data. I'm not using the the tube map to walk from Bond Street to Tottenham Court Road. That may happen, but it's just a long road, so I can just walk along it anyway, and I know it's far. All I want to know is it's three stops, and therefore, do I have time to maybe read this book or play with this app, or am I next? I don't want to miss my stop. I don't want to have that really awkward moment where the doors are closing, and I'm that guy who runs for the doors when they're closing and bang you know it gets stuck and you get your court coat caught in the doors and everybody's looking at you like who's that guy i don't want to be that guy all i want to know is is this the next stop so maps are subjective interpretations of our world and in business we have the choice to choose our maps as opposed to focusing on data purity you don't sell the soda, you sell the can. You don't sell your ingredients, you sell the story. And if you anything, look at the example of Red Bull. Red Bull, billion dollar, multi-billion dollar energy drinks company. It has two Formula One racing teams and numerous sports. It's got very little to do with the actual physical ingredients of the product itself. If you look at the physical ingredients of Red Bull, and the story goes back to when Dieter Mateschitz went to Thailand, and he was in, you know, taking a tuk-tuk around Thailand, and he was wondering why these tuk-tuk drivers were, these crazy tuk-tuk drivers were staying up all night and driving crazy hours. And what was this drink that they were drinking? And it was this Thai drink that had some sort of secret ingredients, but mostly caffeine. And then he hooked up with this local Thai businessman and they went to the factory where they were making this Thai drink in these little files, these little bottles. And they said, well, we love it, we'll buy it. So if you look at some of the original um, Red Bull iconography, the original Red Bull, sort of, you know, the myth surrounding Red Bull is very closely tied to Thailand. And also clubbers that came from Thailand in the 90s, you know, they were going out to these events and full moon parties and bringing back these t-shirts with Red Bull on them, which was the original Thai Red Bull before Dieter Mateschitz bought it which was written in Thai and it had these sort of two balls like facing off against each other. That was the original myth, the origin myth of Red Bull. And that was brought back and then reformatted and repurposed. And interestingly, when Dieter Mateschitz set out to build the business around Red Bull, he, he made a conscious choice of the map. He didn't look at Red Bull as a soda because effectively, I mean, on the basis of the data, on the basis of the purity, on the basis of the logic, on the basis of the product, on the basis of the content, it was soda. It was a fizzy, uh, caffeinate, caffeinated drink, just like Coke, just like Pepsi, and every other drink. But he made a conscious choice that this wasn't going to be soda. 
And in fact, the category that Red Bull wanted to play in didn't exist. So he had to invent one. And that's what's called in storytelling, in business, a strategic narrative. Owning your category. When you own your category, you define it. And the energy drinks category didn't exist. So Dieter Mateschitz had to invent it. He had to invent energy drinks and the category in which they would play because there was no way that they could play in the category of soda because Coke owned that map. They didn't just own the map of Coke is it. Coke was the original, but they owned every single distribution channel. And they would just then be another soda like Dr. Pepper. But Red Bull decided to choose their own map and own it. And when you own the map, you own the strategic narrative about who you are and how people see the world. People aren't seeing your world on the basis of you being a soda. They are following the strategic worldview that you've set out for them, which is this is the energy drinks. This is an experience. This is about events. This is about a lifestyle. That is the power of choosing a map and owning it. That is the power of strategic narratives. And when we look today, increasingly, this choice is becoming key to every single business out there. Because the ingredients that you have and your competitor has are no longer unique. There was a time when you were cloud and they were CD. There was a time when they had AI and you didn't. And there was a time when they could sell insurance and you couldn't. And that's all gone. All the barriers to entry that they taught us in business school and therefore all the rules of competition around them have changed. We have moved from asymmetrical markets to symmetrical markets, from competition to hyper-competition. And in the world of hyper-competition where everybody can play like the Freddie Mercury quip when asked by the journalist about the rumors of his private life, Freddie Mercury, the lead singer of Queen said, darling, fuck it. I'm doing everything with everybody. That is today. That is the reality of the platform economy where everybody is doing everything with everybody. The same delivery drivers, the same machine learning algorithms, the same markets, no barriers to entry, nothing left to compete for except people and stories. And that is why in the world of hyper competition, we are all in the soda business now. 